Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Margaret Atwood's influential novel, The Handmaid's Tale, was published in 1985. The new Hulu series, based on the book, is creating quite a bit of buzz. Some are saying the book's themes are very prescient in our times. Others are pushing back on that idea. And today on the program, we're going to talk about it with Aaron Webster Garrett, professor of English at Radford University, and Sarah Jones, social media editor with the New Republic magazine. Wrote an interesting uh, article recently, The Handmaid's Tale is a Warning to Conservative Women, is the title of that article. We want to know what you think, and you can comment right now to upraxcess at gmail.com. We're on Twitter at upraxcess. You can join us on our Access Utah Facebook page. And, of course, join us following the news. Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Margaret Atwood's influential novel, The Handmaid's Tale, was published in 1985. The new Hulu series based on the book is creating quite a bit of buzz. Some are saying the book's themes are very prescient in our times. Others are pushing back on that idea. We're going to talk about it this hour. Later in the hour, we're going to be talking with Sarah Jones, social media editor with the New Republic magazine. And uh, right now we bring in Aaron Webster Garrett, professor of English at Radford uh, University. Professor Garrett, welcome to the program. Thank you. Good morning. Good morning. Uh, Professor Webster Garrett received her Ph.D. in English and Literary Studies from the University of Denver, her M.A. in uh, English from Virginia Commonwealth University, B.A. in English and Spanish from University of uh, Richmond, teacher of both writing and uh, literature, and uh, I think specializing in uh, British literature? Yes, I did my work on uh, 18th and 19th century British literature and work with um, Mary Shelley and with uh, um, Victorian novelists primarily. But and, Margaret Atwood is a favorite of mine, so yeah, I'm yes. so glad to be here and able to speak with you. Let, yeah, let's talk about that. And there's you know, there's some connections between Mary Shelley and Margaret Atwood. We'll talk about that a little later in the program. Um, let's hear the, and of course the novel's been around, and uh, it seems like whenever we have a conservative administration, and at any time we talk about, uh, you know, the evangelical Christians or fundamentalism, um, you, you, you hear Margaret Atwood bubbling more to the surface. Now in the age of Trump, it's, uh, you know, it's kind of hit a fever pitch, and especially with the release of the Hulu series. And let's hear the uh, trailer to the, the Hulu series based on the book. I was asleep before. That's how we let it happen. When they slaughtered Congress, we didn't wake up. When they blamed terrorists and suspended the Constitution, we didn't wake up then either. Now I'm awake. My name is Alfred. I had another name. Ladies, I have to let you go. It's the law now. They needed to do it this way. All the bank accounts and the jobs all at the same time. You imagine the airports otherwise? Run, run, run! You girls will serve the leaders and their barren wives. You will bear children for them. There's an eye in your house. We'll send you to the colonies. You'll be cleaning up toxic waste and then you'll die. Of Gilead and of what we have achieved. We only wanted to make the world better. Better. Better never means better for everyone. 
livelihood to keep on living for her. Remember your scripture. Blessed are the meek. And blessed are those who suffer for the cause of righteousness. So there's the trailer gives you a sense of the Hulu series, which is uh, ongoing, based on Margaret Atwood's uh, influential uh, book. Um, and uh, Professor Webster Garrett, I was talking to a friend this morning who'd been watching a bit of the Hulu series. Uh, she described it as creepy. <laughs> it is mm. a it is a dystopia. Uh, for those who aren't familiar with the outlines of the plot of the book, maybe you could fill us in a little bit. Sure. Um- I think it, you know, I think that's a great uh, word choice. Uh, the the novel itself is very dark and uh, one could say creepy, but it has a humor running throughout it that is uh, just perfect Atwood, which I think is important to to note. She's a wonderful satirist as well as a conveyor of some uncomfortable uh, realities. So The Handmaid's Tale is commonly described as a dystopic novel. It imagines a America in the not too dear, uh, not too distant future, where a totalitarian theocratic regime has taken control. Um, this new regime is known as Gilead and the Republic of Gilead, and it takes as a fundamental premise the idea of women's absolute subordination to men by virtue of their biology, and as such, it kind of tests in a literary laboratory, the ideas of feminist um, theorists such as Simone de Beauvoir, who argue that the ideas of biological determinism are, in fact, the very root of patriarchal ideology, and they depend upon the subordination of women and the idea that women are really defined by their ability to bear children. Um, this is a world where uh, women are color-coded. There are uh, the handmaids, who are women who have been identified as fertile, and they, of course, have the red with the white habit. And then there are the aunts who are um, what one critic called torture lecturers. They um, indoctrinate the handmaids on the new regime, the new rules of this of this world order. And there are um, Marthas, who are the domestic servants. They dress in uh, a drab green, according to the novel. And then there are the commander's wives, who dress in blue. They're upper class. They have, um, they're at the top of the pecking order of women. And then I, there's this wonderful line where she talks about econo wives. And those are the women who have to perform all of the functions of the other women, domestic care, being a wife. Uh, being fertile, but they are married to men of less wealth, and so they have um, shabbier clothing in stripes of blue, green, and red. <laughs> so um, this is a, a a very interesting kind of testing of that thesis of, well, what happens if, in fact, you go into uh, a world where women's subordination is accepted, and you follow the consciousness, the evolving consciousness of our of our protagonist, Offred, who before the regime was known as June, but now her name is um, Offred. And like a slave, she has been stripped of her prior identity. She's been renamed, and she is now considered to be um, an object purely for reproductive purposes. Um, so as the novel progresses, we get flashbacks into June's life before Gilead. We know that she was a, um, that she had an affair with a married man who she ended up marrying herself, and that they had a child, that she had work that she enjoyed, 
and that uh, the day that her credit card stopped working, the day that her money and all the money of women uh, in the uh, regime were frozen, she and her husband decide to flee to Canada, and they don't make it. Um, So she uh, wakes up in something called the Red Center, which is where she is uh, then formally indoctrinated into becoming a handmaid. And the novel takes place five years after this process. So she's been um, a, a handmaid and, uh, and for five years. And that's where it begins as she we follow her emerging uh, consciousness as she goes from identifying herself as a victim to uh, become becoming more and more subversive uh, throughout the novel to finally having some kind of um, belief in everyday acts of rebellion. And... In that way, I think the novel is is really fascinating because it suggests that survival for women is the ultimate act of rebellion in a patriarchal order. Um, is that? I'm not sure. Uh, yes, that's that, that's that's yeah. excellent. That's excellent. Um, so, uh, and that becomes a kind of a her her mantra, right? I'm I'm going to survive this. Offred, yes. Offred yes. Says. And it, it dovetails with a, a novel, not a novel, a um, a book that Atwood wrote on uh, on the, the Canadian mythos, and she talks about resistance and survival as being the dominant mythology, uh, national mythology in Canada. And so then it translates as well into uh, into her fiction about women. So I think it's a it's a really interesting premise, especially as you think about survival in the novel as it connects with writing. In this new regime, women are not allowed to write, they're not allowed to read, all kind of written material is banned, and yet women, especially are um, offered as she walks through the world, she is having to read and interpret symbols constantly. Uh, She has to be able to read her companions in terms of whether they are spies for the regime, what the novel calls eyes, if they are part of the underground, if she is behaving appropriately, what, how does she navigate her world so that she can, in fact, survive? And we put that in contrast with, um, with other figures in the novel, her mother, who was deported to the, to the colonies, basically to, to clean up toxic waste, and so it's a, it's a very terrible punishment for leading rebellions um, earlier on, leading protests. Um, and then her best friend, Moira, who is uh, a radical feminist uh, lesbian who refuses to submit to the new order and uh, eventually is, uh, attempts to escape and is, um, is imprisoned in a, uh, and forced to prostitute herself in a, a club called the, the Jezebel. And um, those contrasts of open rebellion against Alfred, whose rebellions are very uh, maybe muted, one might say. They are, they are subtle, but they are there, um, and she is the one at the end who survives. Mm. And, and the novel is really interesting as well because there's this great satire at the very end called Historical Notes, and it's uh, a satire of an academic lecture um, in the in the year 2195, where the academic has found the transcript of Alfred's journal and is trying to, you know, put it into a, a sociological or anthropological context. You know, who was the actual narrator and where are all the, the information about this civilization? Um, and 
what is interesting is that it's all about trying to verify her account. And what it comes down to is that this, this novel really is about storytelling and about truth through story, which I find absolutely um, brilliant. And there, of course, the themes are there. You know, environment, um, gender roles, gender future. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, uh, terrorism um, and and society's uh, reaction to that. Uh, civil liberties. Uh, Atwood, uh, she I understand she likes to call this speculative fiction. She's not 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 yep. writing it as prophecy so much. Uh, she told Bill Moyers. I'm reading from uh, Alternate.org. It's a blueprint of the kind of thing that human beings do when they're put under a certain sort of pressure. And as she goes on to say, I made it a rule for writing this book that I would not put in anything into it that human societies have not already done. And mm-hmm. so that's that's where, you know, the connection to, you know, terrorism and what's our response to it. And, uh, you know, there's fundamentalist societies at what is speculating on a fundamentalist Christian society, I guess. Yes, yes, that does seem to be the, the dominant, um, the dominant uh, ideology, uh, that it's, it's Christian-based or at least some form of, of Christianity. It's interesting, too, looking at, I was looking up um, earlier what was going on in the world in the 1980s, um, just kind of giving myself a historical reminder. So 1985, the year that the book came out, was the first year of Ronald Reagan's second term. It was also... Uh, uh, the year that the first test tube babies were being um, were uh, successfully uh, brought to you know were successful, and in result there were lots of debates in the UK and in the states about ethical bioethics. Now, what um, what does this mean for um, for fertility in general? And many of the things that are in the novel were, in fact, concerns. The idea of um, surrogacy, the idea of um, you know uh, in vitro fertilization, fertilization, all of those ideas were swirling around this idea. Well, what is the role of of, of a woman, you know, in this in this context, and what um, and how is this in service to women? I think those are uh, dialogues and themes that run obviously throughout the the novel as well. What what is Atwood? Uh, of course, she's responding to some of the themes uh, from her from her time then, the nineteen eighties. Mm. The, the book's being called very prescient now. Some people are saying, no, no, you know, this couldn't happen here. Um, mm. But those same people I notice are saying, well, this is happening in other, you know, this could be set in Saudi Arabia or or ISIS or Taliban, you know. Um, so what what was yeah. what were, yeah. what was what was uh, Atwood's purpose? Do you think main purpose in in, in writing these things. Well, I think, you know, I was, I think I was 16 or 17 when I read the book for the first time, and it just made so much sense to me because it was the 19, you know, 1985. Um, this was the era of the moral majority. Um, there seemed to me as a young woman to be an incredible backlash against the civil rights um, and women's rights movements of the 1960s and 70s. My mom had been a great activist and advocate for reproductive rights, and in the 1980s, those reproductive rights, it seemed like we were taking several steps away, that we were losing ground rather than gaining ground. So in the 19, you know, 1985, the novel seemed to reflect my own anxiety as a young woman, and um, not sure what, uh, how to activate, and that the, the forces that were pushing back against women's rights um, were so much larger and so diffuse uh, and coming from so many different um, 
different directions that it was hard to know how to how to organize. I, I think that that's still the case today as well. We see the erosion of women's ability to get adequate health care. Um, we see the, the difficulty it is um, uh, for women to, to access basic, basic, um, basic care, basic rights as well. And so I don't know that I would say that Gilead could happen in, uh, in Virginia today. Obviously, you know, that would be, that's not the, not the point. But the idea is that these structures are here and that there is interference um, with the ability to fully exercise one's human rights. And in this order, in the novel, the, the fundamental premise, again, is, is, the, is the subordination not only of women, but of the feminine. So that allows you then to, if you feminize nature, then you, are, you can control it, and it is then, in fact, an abject, right? It is not, um, uh, it, its value is only for what it can produce in a patriarchal order, an order that values the masculine and the male. And that sets up a whole paradigm for oppression that, can, um, that reaches out through economics to imperialism to environmentalism, and it's, it, is a, um, it is a fundamental premise upon which uh, all of the other actions can be justified. And if that is the case, then you end up with a world that is um, poisoned mm-hmm. and uh, with... Uh, yeah, and with with the subsequent um, problems as well. We're talking with Erin uh, Webster uh, Garrett. She is professor of English at uh, Radford University. We're talking about The Handmaid's Tale. It's been uh, an influential novel ever since its publication in 1985, getting a lot of buzz now with the release of the new Hulu uh, television series based on the novel, talking about it uh, on the program today. And uh, we're later in the program, we'll be talking with Sarah Jones, social media editor with the New Republic uh, magazine. Sarah, Sarah Jones has an interesting experience uh, that she outlines in her article for the New Republic. We'll talk with her about that. She uh, grew up in a kind of a fundamentalist uh, Christian uh, world and and then repudiated that world. She says she sees a lot of themes from her own experience in The Handmaid's Tale. Um, So uh, let's take a break. When we come back, um, I want to talk more about this. Um, And you're welcome to join the conversation. Love to get your take on this. Or Have you read the book? Are you watching the series? And what do you think about parallels uh, to today's world or lack of parallels? Some people are pushing back on this. Uh, the number is 800-826-1495, and uh, you can join us by email to upraxis at gmail.com or on Twitter at upraxis, and you can join us on our uh, Facebook page, Access Utah. More following this break. This is Learning Life's Lessons. Hi, I'm Beverly Bluri. Ask for help. That has been one of the most valuable life lessons I have had in my whole experience. But how do you do that? You need to get crystal clear on exactly what you want at that specific time. Then ask everyone you know to teach you, advise you, and perhaps even help you come to some solutions as to what can help you out in your situation. Ask teachers, community, volunteers, family, friends, anyone who is in your life. And report back and tell them how they helped you out. This will help you in your success and your life. Learning Life's Lessons on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and the USU University Inn and Conference Center Summer Citizens Program, celebrating 40 years of living and learning at the top of Utah. Information at summercitizens.usu.edu.
Thanks for listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Later in this program, we'll be talking with Sarah Jones, social media editor with the New Republic Magazine. Right now, we have Aaron Webster-Garrett, who's professor of English at Radford University. We're talking about The Handmaid's Tale, Margaret Atwood's novel from 1985, and the new Hulu series starring Elizabeth Moss that's creating quite a bit of buzz and discussion. Um, about uh, the prescience or no, the parallels to today or no, and we're talking about some of the themes. You're welcome to join the conversation at 800-826-1495, 800-826-1495, or uh, upraxcess at gmail.com is our email. You can also join us on Twitter at upraxcess. Our Facebook page is uh, Access Utah. So, uh, Aaron Webster, uh, Garrett, the uh, you know, if you do a Google search, Handmaid's Tale, uh, the, the opinion pieces, uh, you know, Flow like water, and a lot of them are uh, talking about the, uh, the parallels or no. Could this happen here? Uh, before the break, um, like you were making the argument that uh, you know that's a kind of a separate issue. You're talking about how uh, Margaret Atwood, I guess, would say, and that you're saying that these uh, some of these themes are uh, already with us. This is just taking it to the, the, the to the extreme. Yes, now I wouldn't want to speak with for Margaret Atwood, <laughs> but I can certainly say that um, that I think that yes, some of those uh, these fundamental premises are in action, very you know right now, absolutely, and they inform policy and they inform everyday uh, activities of men and women, um, everything from how you can find a, a medical provider to. Uh, provide certain kinds of care to how you navigate with your um, employer about, um, you know, medical leave or different kinds of, uh, of policies that they may have. So, yes, I think that, that the novel absolutely uh, nails it in terms of the structures that undermine um, and underpin a lot of the, of the rights that we have as men and women. In, uh, in society, and certainly not just in America, but globally, these are these are huge issues. Now, what would you say now to the to the direct uh, question, which a lot of uh, the articles are, are are focusing on, which is, you know, could it happen here? You know, this is basically Taliban in America, right? Uh, mm. uh, you know, no civil rights, uh, subjugation of, of women, slavery, even. Um, and there's usually a caveat, uh, you know, not credibly likely, but maybe more likely in Trump's America. You could also put, you know, Bush's America or Reagan's America. It's usually when a Republican <laughs> I know, and that's you'd read right. the conservative, right. you'd see conservative reviews, and they always push back on it because uh, they don't like that. Well, I think it's a really interesting, it's an interesting premise. But I guess I, I come back to the fact that I think. Um, that this maybe is the reality for women already in parts of our society. Uh, women with uh, little economic means, we have um, problems with, uh, you know, huge issues with sex trafficking. We have, um, you know, so I, I guess I would want more definition on what do you mean in terms of could it be a reality. Um, for some women, I think it already, it is a reality. Um, now, could the Constitution be overturned should a civil war happen. Um, those are kind of, you know, catastrophes of the most uh, extreme kind. I think a, a republic is as healthy as its citizenry. I think, um, you know, our, our education of our young people um, in civil discourse and the importance of education, higher education, of, uh, of having 
dialogue is absolutely fundamental to keeping our democracy and our republic healthy. You know, if you whittle away at those under under uh, under structures, those foundations, those pillars, then one does have to wonder where do you end up. But I don't think that that's going to happen. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I hope not. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so uh, I want to talk a little bit about the uh, the series versus the book. It's always interesting to you know the, the, there are updates that happen. Of course, uh, you're not going to totally go with uh, with uh, some of the themes that were, I guess. Uh, foremost on Atwood's mind in the 1980s. I imagine it's pretty faithful. Is it? I think that there's some interesting uh, reordering of, I guess, the way that you get information in the novel as opposed to information in the series. Um, It seems to me to be uh, true in spirit, if not in absolute detail. Um, It gets most of the details to me seems very uh, spot on. It's updated. I think that that's, uh, it's, so it's a, it's a, it's a much easier translation for say um, my students to, to watch it with me than perhaps the novel may seem a little um, uh, distant historically. Um, But the, the Hulu series has certainly brought it right into the 21st century in compelling ways. It's always interesting to um, because there, there are things that television or movies can do that uh, the books can't do, and, and vice versa as well. Um, right, right. So, what what was your reaction to the the series so far? Well, I binge watched it, so if that's any indication, I uh, I I just uh, came in, I guess, three weeks. It had already been running for three weeks, and I sat down and just watched the episodes back to back to back. I think it's very compelling. The acting, I think, is is. Um, extraordinary the the representation of the commander's wife who has always been an interesting character uh, to me in the novel you know her backstory and what is uh, the way that women in the novel uh, are are complicit in uh, the subjugation of other women and in uh, even in their own subordination uh, is is was really interesting to see how that was uh, demonstrated through the character uh, in the in the series as well, the movements, the way that uh, that they, that she used her presence on the screen. In the novel, the commander's wife has arthritis and has a cane and is physically uh, not. Uh, I think she's older in the novel, and in the Hulu series, she is a contemporary of um, of the handmaid. So that was an interesting change too, to to make her not an older woman, but a but of the same age as the handmaid, and to make her physically able externally, whereas in the novel she has a physical manifestation of some kind of, uh, of illness, arthritis, or physical disability. Mm. Well, we'll continue on to some of those themes in the, in the next half hour with uh, Sarah Jones. Before we let you go, we have about three, three minutes or three or four minutes left. I want to uh, get a little bit on this connection between uh, Mary Shelley and Margaret Atwood, mm. which I guess some would not immediately find obvious. But uh, I was reading a, a review yeah. you did of a, of a, I guess, a monograph by Suparna Banerjee uh, titled Science, Gender, and History, The Fantastic and Mary Shelley and Margaret Atwood. Yes. Well, you know, Mary Shelley is, you know, um, just fascinating to me in so many ways. Frankenstein is her most famous novel. It was the novel that she wrote when she was 18 or 19. It was her first novel. And it takes this, um, as one critic put it, this premise of what happens when a man tries to have a baby without a woman, right? So it's about creating life with um, kind of in defiance of the maternal. So there's uh, an absence of um, 
of uh, functional female mother figures in the novel. Um, so if you look at that in terms of the idea of science is chasing a female feminine nature to her hiding places, which is a quote from the novel, you have this sense that it is a uh, another form, again, of that subordination of the feminine to a uh, phallocentric ideology, to a male-dominated way of viewing the world. Mary Shelley took that into another novel, The Last Man, which is probably one of, uh, probably her second uh, most uh, read novel. Uh, it's an apocalyptic fiction. Um, it's, um, it takes the idea of the plague, which is metaphorized as um, female, and The Last Man is narrating. It's a story about storytelling, about uh, uh, telling your story to a reader who is absent but is everywhere at the same time, and the, the need to record your history, which is really fascinating. But again, this is a world where the mother nature has now lashed out, has uh, has leveled the playing field. But there is, again, that dynamic of, of uh, man versus nature um, and that paradigm, how it, it does not end well for humanity <laughs> in that paradigm. And if you look at what Atwood is doing with The Handmaid's Tale and then what she does later with the Oryx and Creek trilogy, you see that that, um, that set of ideas is running throughout um, the notion of, a, of an endocentric science, a science that puts uh, male and masculinity as sort of the default mode. What happens when that, um, it's kind of a blinder to the other ethical and uh, practical considerations that one needs to have? And how does that um, serve the future? Those are questions I think Shelley was asking, and then those are questions that um, Atwood obviously is, is picking up as well. It's interesting, Atwood was a scholar of Victorian literature, if I'm not mistaken. So um, I'm more than sure that she was extremely familiar with uh, Shelley and with, um, with the works of other speculative uh, fiction writers in the 19th and 20th centuries. Well, a very interesting connection, and uh, we appreciate you uh, taking yeah. the time to, to be with us. Aaron Webster Garrett, professor of English at Radford University, has uh, joined us. Thank you so much. Well, thank you so much for having me. It's been fun. And uh, we'll take a break. When we come back, we'll be uh, switching gears, talking with Sarah Jones, a social media editor with the New Republic magazine. Um, and uh, her article, recent article in the New Republic, is uh, headlined, The Handmaid's Tale is a Warning to Conservative Women. More following this break. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members, and support for science reporting on Utah Public Radio comes from the Utah State University Ecology Center, providing training opportunities for today's science communicators, one story at a time. Next time on Ask Me Another, Tiny Desk Contest winners take the bangas talk about the years of hard work that went into becoming an overnight success. It's literally a mix between knowing that you've been a running, athletic racehorse slash <laughs> people thinking that you're a mystical unicorn. Right! Join me, Ophira Eisenberg, for NPR's Hour of Puzzles, Word Games, and Trivia. Join us Saturday morning at 10 on Utah Public Radio. You're listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. We're talking about The Handmaid's Tale. Margaret Atwood's 1985 novel has been very influential, much talked about, and now a lot more buzz even than before 
because of the new Hulu uh, television uh, series. Sarah Jones, writing in the New Republic magazine, uh, says uh, Gilead, the, uh, that's the, uh, the place, uh, the, the America of the dystopian novel, has existed in a, as a paper nightmare that gains or loses dimension based on the state of our national politics. And uh, certainly there are a lot of articles being written on could this happen here, uh, what are their parallels, and we're going to continue this discussion now with Sarah Jones, who is social media editor with uh, the New Republic magazine. Welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. We appreciate it. Very interesting uh, article. Um, And uh, we began a discussion before the break with uh, Professor uh, Webster Garrett about uh, this interesting character. Maybe we could pick this up here. Uh, Serena Joy, right, the the commander's uh, wife. Uh, And you talk about about her. Um, I wonder if we could pick up uh, that discussion. By the way, the title, the headline of your article is The Handmaid's Tale is a Warning to Conservative Women, talking about... uh, horrors of collusion with the uh, the patriarchy. By the way, the illustration is very uh, interesting. Um, it, it's um, a familiar face with the bonnet and the red robe, and it uh, looks very much like Kellyanne Conway. That's right. Yeah, it is. Uh, so tell me a little bit about your take on uh, Serena Joy, the, the, uh, the, this character, uh, the, the commander's wife. Right. Uh, so I've always found Serena Joy... Um, probably the most compelling character in The Handmaid's Tale. Um, as, as you mentioned, she's the wife of the commander, and in the book and in the show, um, it's, you know, it's described that she had this career before Gilead became an entity. And that career was based heavily on Phyllis Schlafly's career. She was a conservative speaker, so she led rallies, she wrote books, you know, she was a very prominent public figure who was agitating for the creation of a state like Gilead, so a return to traditional values, um, a refrain that we hear very often in American politics and have for decades. Uh, and of course, she ends up getting what she wants, but it turns out, you know, it's not quite what she expected it to be. Uh, yeah, she's uh, she, she's envisioned this world, but now that the or, or at least her version, I imagine it didn't exactly match up with the way it ended up. But uh, she has at least participated in in moving that direction, but it hasn't ended up how she wanted it. That's right. Um, in the show, the most the most recent episode of The Handmaid's Tale, you see this more clearly in that she did expect to have some sort of power sharing role in Gilead, and of course, you know. She was still promoting something that she called domestic feminism, uh, where a woman's place is in the home. And she thought that she was maybe going to get an exemption to this, and it turns out she was actually promoting an ideology that was going to trap her along with every other woman. So you write that America's rich in Serena Joys. One look, need look no further than uh, Michelle Duger and her daughters, or Paula White, or uh, Kellyanne Conway, or uh, you know Phyllis Schlafly, uh, with a dash of Amy Semple McPherson. Um, mm-hmm. So that the, the, these figures, uh, you know, do, do exist, and you're you're saying that they they're in collusion. I would argue yes. I mean, it, it's quite easy to become a prominent woman in in what we call the religious right in America. You just have to say the right thing to men who want to hear them. And typically that means saying things like a woman's place is in the home. It means agitating against legal abortion rights. It means restricting LGBT rights. It means promoting this very narrow definition of femininity that's basically just shaped by domestic, you know, a domestic role at the expense of everything else. 
Um, and so you can achieve no small amount of fame this way in the United States. It's been like that for a long time. And so what, one of the things that I find particularly interesting and disturbing about The Handmaid's Tale, it isn't even necessarily the creation of Gilead or Gilead's laws, although those are disturbing. It's about, you know, what happens when these women finally get what they want. Uh, tell me a little bit about your background. Very interesting. You write about it in the article. You were raised in a, I don't know, it was a fundamental Christian, uh, you know, place, but but pretty, um, you know, to to the to the right of the political spectrum. I, I imagine. Yes, very. Uh, my parents identify themselves as fundamentalist Christians. I was homeschooled most of the way through my education, and then I went to a very conservative Christian college. So this is very much the culture that I grew up in, and you know, the role that Fiorina Dreyer writes about in her books, the role that she helps create for women in Gilead. It's not too dissimilar from the role um, that I was expected to eventually inhabit, and of course, Gilead being a, you know, we're talking about a work of speculative fiction, so it is exaggerated, and it is hyperbole, um, but th- at least this idea that women are supposed to be in the home, and supposed to be wives and mothers, um, to the exclusion of everything else, um, that, is, uh, that is something that I'm very familiar with. Uh, so you said uh, two events convinced you to leave your church. Uh, tell me about that. Mm-hmm. Right, yeah. So I attended this very conservative Christian college. You know, I certainly didn't have any intention of, of leaving my faith at that time. Um, but it's very interesting when you sort of put yourself in that environment, you're confronted with those beliefs all the time, and it does make you think very carefully about sort of what you're doing and what you, you know, the adult that you want to become after you leave college. Um, so the first event, I read The Handmaid's Tale while I was at uh, my college. Um, and even though, you know, it is exaggerated, it's about a dystopia, I could see sort of the, the initial seeds around me, and it was still a bit too close for comfort. And I think that was exemplified by the modesty panel that I talk about um, in the essay as well, where all the speakers were men, and they were not just our professors, but our peers, they were our classmates. Um, who were expected to answer questions about appropriate dress for women. So everything from appropriate swimsuits and wedding dresses, um, we got to hear about how immodest it was for girls to wear uh, pajama pants to the cafeteria. Um, And the justification for this is that, you know, it was organized by a women's organization, so how could it be anti-woman? How could it even be anti-feminist? And that's not an explanation that I found very satisfying at the time. Now, this was explained, I guess, or, or, you know, people who agreed with this, the Modesty Panel, it was, it's pro-woman, right? Uh, women organized it. Right, yeah. I mean, there were there's definitely some dissent on campus. I wasn't the only person who had a problem with it. But I would say that the prevailing opinion from professors and from other women on campus even was that this was good and appropriate. I remember I had a friend at college at the time who talked to me about my concerns, and she said, you know, when I wear something that my boyfriend thinks is inappropriate. He tells me to change, and I'm so glad that he tells me to do that. And I find that found that viscerally disturbing at the time and very sort of uh, kind of exemplified the issues that I read in The Handmaid's Tale. No, uh, there's a theme there that you draw a parallel to that in, um, in The Handmaid's Tale, the, the aunt who's indoctrinating Alfred and the others uh, says that what we want to do is uh, preserve your value, right? 
Right, right. That, you know, we think you're precious and we want to protect you and preserve you. And so this means that you're going to dress a certain way and it means that you're going to behave a certain way. And so even though they're, they're, they are sexualizing these women and kind of reducing them to their sexuality, so, you know, they're less than human beings, um, it's because they think, you know, women's sexuality is exactly what makes them precious. Then, of course, you know, this is a lie. They're not actually protecting anyone. They're oppressing them. Hmm. Now that you know we're we're here in Utah, there these themes I think would resonate with um, you know the the Mormon community. Uh, you know, debate going on within the Mormon community, which, uh, which uh, boils to the surface from from time to time. The, these same themes. Um, would, mm-hmm. You know, I I lived here in Utah through the whole debate over the Equal Rights Amendment, which was uh, opposed by by the by the church, um, and and some of these debates still go go on and. From the point of view of many Mormon women, I expect, you can call in and uh, tell me if I'm right or wrong, 800-826-1495. Um, you know, s- some Mormon women do see this as a patriarchy, you know, too too strong. You know, we need need more empowerment for ourselves. Others uh, are comfortable with, within this and, and, and see this as uh, meeting their needs. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah, that's very true of, of fundamentalist Protestant Christianity as well. Uh, so did you, I guess you you found, before you left, and I guess even now, if you went back and talked to friends, you'd find women who are are, are, are okay, fine, more than okay, fine, right? Right, and society. they even consider it to be empowering. And I think, you know, I, I have less of an issue where a woman decides this is a personal choice that I'm going to make, and this is what I'm personally comfortable with. But when you're saying, you know, this is how everyone else ought to be, you should find it exactly as empowering as I do, then I think you, you cross into some trouble. Yeah, and that's where um, I, I guess if you talk about the dangers of fundamentalism, um, right? You, you uh, right now, fundamental fundamentalism asks you to endure a thousand separate indignities and tells you that this is freedom. The, the theme in the book, and uh, there's the danger that many people are pointing out. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. Um, so um, uh, let me ask you the question: That you don't treat this uh, specifically in your article. Um, but uh, that's where the discussion is going on many of the articles, is how likely is this? Could this happen? This seems to bubble up, and there's, you know, the people who are saying, oh, this is very prescient in, in, you know, Trump's America. Right. So the interesting thing about The Handmaid's Tale is that when Margaret Atwood wrote it, she was pulling bits and pieces from real-life theocracies from around the world, and that's reflected in the show as well. So she didn't just make it up out of whole cloth. Um, this this sort of theocracy does exist to, to certain degrees across the world, and I don't think there's any reason to say that you know that this can't happen in America. I would say you know it's almost like the doomsday clock in a way where we you know we kind of get a minute closer to nuclear conflict, uh, apocalypse and then a minute further away from it. And I think you could almost say the same thing about Gilead. And I think. You know, the comparisons to Gilead can be a bit overwrought. Um, we're obviously not there yet. We aren't literally living in Gilead. But I do, I'm very sympathetic to activists when they invoke it as sort of this specter of something, you know, that frightens them and haunts them because it is a warning. And, you know, there is no reason to say that that Gilead or something like it could not exist here at some point. Yeah, let me read this quote again. I read it earlier in the program. I want to have you uh, react to this. Um, so Margaret Atwood, talking to Bill Moyers several years ago, she says, it's a blueprint of the kind of thing that human beings do when they're put under a certain sort of pressure. 
And I made it a rule for writing the book that I would not put anything in it that human societies have not already done. I I think that is a concern, right? It's uh, terrorism, whatever it is, does put society under under pressure. And then this is Margaret Atwood's novel as a warning of uh, where it could go. Right, exactly. And in the book and the show, you have the fertility crisis, which acts as sort of a catalyst for all of this. And it I think that's a very interesting, deliberate choice by Atwood there, because fertility is such a primal thing for so many people. And if you were facing, perhaps, the decline or even the end of the human species, how far would you go in order to prevent it from happening? So I don't think it's a stretch at all that you would see people, first of all, cling to these more Puritan beliefs. I I don't think it's a stretch either to say that human beings would go to such lengths um, in a bid to basically engineer divine intervention. You, right. Interestingly, in your article, you you say that the way we define feminism is very important. I wonder if you could mm-hmm. ex- expand on that. You, in fact, I think you say here that um, if if uh, if if you have a, um, pro um, or um, what anti-abortion um, feminist, then that kind of dilutes it. Is that what you're saying, or did I get that wrong? No, you're you're correct. Although I would draw a line again uh, between women who would be personally opposed to abortion for their situations and women who agitate uh, um, for the criminalization of abortion. I think there's a bit of a difference there. Um, but I do think it's very important when we say feminist, when we invoke feminism, it needs to mean something specific. And what is feminism? We should be able to answer that question. And I see it as a political project with the aim of achieving liberation for women and I don't think that you can achieve that if, again, you oppose legal abortion rights, for example, or you oppose LGBT rights. It means something. Um, so we hear requests often from women who do oppose abortion rights to expand that definition to include them. And I think that's very dangerous. And I think, you know, pieces of fiction um, like The Handmaid's Tale are a very useful way of kind of looking at the possible implications of that. I, I don't think the warning is diluted necessarily because it's fiction. And there is a debate, ongoing debate, uh, uh, of the you know quote unquote resistance. You know the 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 left is up in arms um, about how how broad a tent. For example, the women's march. There is a debate over you know how widely do we are we inclusive or should we be more pure in this? Right. Um, I'm not sure that purity is necessarily the best way to frame it, but I do think that you do have to have a very specific definition of feminism, and you, you do need to make sure that. If you're going to have an event or a march that is defined as a feminist march, well, I mean, that means something. And I think that's particularly important now when you're looking at the Trump administration and you look at some of the women who are involved with the Trump administration, whether it's Kellyanne Conway or Ivanka Trump, and they are peddling sort of this this superficial version of women's empowerment that sounds sort of feminist if you squint at it and you don't look at it too hard. Um, but it's actually in service of anti-feminism. It's, it's in service of authoritarianism even. Um, so it's particularly important now for activists to insist on like a clear and concise definition for feminism and what that means and to enforce it at their events um, and at their marches. Just have about a minute left. Um, Handmaid's Tale, the book, has been you know a seminal book in your life, and now getting another moment uh, with the Hulu television series. What um, what what does this mean? I guess. Uh, what do you think it should mean? What do you hope it means for people? 
Well, I'm I'm delighted that it's sort of enjoying a resurgence. You know, I reread it as I was writing my essay, and it just it holds up so well. And I I found it as moving as I did when I read it the first time. So I just hope that it's as formative for other women and for for people who aren't women as it was for me. I would urge people to you know do keep it in mind as a piece of fiction that it is to understand what it's trying to say, um, and if it motivates people to get in the streets. Um, to demand their rights, then I think that's that's a net positive. Well, we have been talking with Sarah Jones, social media editor with The New Republic magazine, and you can find her uh, uh, interesting article about The Ten Handmaid's Tale on The New Republic uh, uh, magazine website. Uh, Sarah Jones, thank you so much. Thank you. And uh, tomorrow we're going to be talking about uh, the role of government in uh, saving us from ourselves. Specifically, there have been proposals to uh, tax sugar, and we're going to talk about that on the program tomorrow. Hope you join us then. Thanks for listening today. Next up is Bread and Butter, a culinary chronicle with Lael Gilbert. With the world's population projected to reach 9.6 billion by 2050, and with most of this growth taking place in the developing world, more than half of it in Africa, the challenge around the world is, how do we produce enough food for everyone? The answer is not, as you might think, to produce more food, but actually to stop wasting what we already have, according to the United Nations. A staggering one-third of the food on our planet is wasted. Some 1.3 billion tons of potatoes, peaches, toast, and meatballs go straight to the landfill. That's enough to feed every one of the world's 800 million who suffer from hunger, and to serve up second helpings as well. This inefficiency is both frustrating and tragic and brings enormous consequences to economies and the environment. When you hear about big problems, failures in systems, cultures, and government, it's easy to feel helpless. But food waste is a problem you can actually do something about at your very next meal. How can you change your relationship with food so that you value it more and waste it less? In poorer countries, food spoils because of limited options for storage, transportation, and refrigeration. In developed countries like ours, food is thrown out because businesses overorder and consumers overbuy. But there is hope. Becoming more thoughtful about your food will help you cut down on that waste. Whether you are simply more conscious while you shop and cook, whether you actually grow and store your own food, Or even if you just think more about what you buy and eat, you are taking steps to feed a hungry world. There are three main factors in American food waste. First, abundance. Although food prices have been rising in the past few years, when you look at the household spending that goes towards food, no other nation in the world spends less on its food supply than we do, less than 7% of our household income. People in Russia, Indonesia, and India and Africa spend more than 40%. It's harder to value things that are inexpensive. Second, appearance. People don't eat ugly food these days. In the 1940s, a pear might not have been shiny, perfectly yellow, or free of small blemishes, yet your grandma happily ate it. Now, imperfect food gets discarded before it even hits the produce section of the grocery store. And finally, attitude. Cleaning out the fridge of forgotten Chinese food and leftover tuna casserole is a cultural norm. And at American restaurants, people expect giant plates of food, more than they could ever eat in one sitting. 
and then end up throwing out much of that rice, refried beans, vegetables, and bread at the end of the meal. If we can change these three factors, then the amount of food we waste will drop, and there will be more food to go around. In the next few weeks, I'll talk more about specific tactics we can use to address the causes of food waste in our own kitchens. This is Lael Gilbert for Bread and Butter. There is no issue more divisive in America today than immigration policy. The federal government has formally begun moving to get tougher on illegal immigration. I just signed two executive orders. President Trump talking tough on immigration. That will save thousands of lives, millions of jobs. And folks just don't want to come to this country any longer. Ask 21 people what they think. You're going to get 21 different answers. The Department of Homeland Security... As Utah Public Radio begins research for a new original series, we want your knowledge and opinions. What do you think about immigration in the U.S.? Do you want to see changes in the refugee process? Have immigrants had a particular impact in your life? We want to know what you think about these important issues. At upr.org, let your voice be heard. On the next Putumayo World Music Hour, we'll explore Canada, which is a magnet for world music artists from around the globe. You can dance to a hot Latin band, enjoy the delicate beauty of love songs from India, or sway to the rhythms of calypso and reggae. I'm Dan Storper. And I'm Rosalie Howard. Join us for World Music in Canada, the next Putumayo World Music Hour. Join us Friday night at 10 on Utah Public Radio. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and Utah Humanities, empowering Utahns to improve their communities through active engagement. Online at utahhumanities.org. This is Utah Public Radio, a statewide service of Utah State University and the College of Humanities and Social Sciences. KUSR Logan, KUSK Vernal, KUSL Richfield, KUST Moab, KCEU Price, and KUSU FM Logan, also heard online at upr.org.